like what you and I are into and what we're about to talk about, mm-hmm. it might not be for everybody. Like, right, trying I mean, to kill big deer. We're talking about hunting big mature whitetails. Yep. If you don't like it, sorry. Perfect. What's up, Nate? Dude, how are you? Oh, doing well. Just sitting in the office getting some work done. What you guys up to? Just just living the dream, you know what I mean? Yeah. Heck yeah. There's work ways to be living. <laughs> yeah, I know, dude. So I'm really excited to have you on today, man. I'm like I'm yeah. excited for our conversation and I'm excited to kind of get to know you better and, and just kind of understand who you are and where you're coming from and, and just everything you got going on in life. And I, I, before we got on this podcast here, I, I did a little bit of digging into your social media even more than I already have. And I just think that what you got going on is pretty amazing. Honestly, I'm interested to hear more about precision archery and um, what exactly it is that you're doing and how you're doing it. But really quick, just want to introduce you um, to the listeners. Uh, we got Scooter Barnwell on today. Uh, Scooter is one of our finalists. I think the number one for our Mag Five series. And if you guys are just tuning in, the Mag Five series is basically a celebration of the top five videos submitted, uh, basically using the Mag Pro and a cell phone to film a hunt or an encounter. And, uh, so we're going to hear about that today too. And I'm, I'm excited to hear the details all behind that, but yeah. So how are you doing, man? Man, I'm doing well. I, uh, I'm in real estate for a day job and then I'm sure we'll get into this, but I run my custom archery shop on the side. Uh, but today's a day of lots of emails and sitting in the office, you know, getting things done, but it's a good day, man. Doing well. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm excited to chat and have a conversation around this. So you said you're in real estate. Yeah. So how long you been doing that? About a year and two months. Uh, I, I have a background of being in ministry, full-time ministry before this. Is that right? Um, yeah, yeah. I was a youth pastor for eight and a half years uh, at my, one of my local churches here in the upstate South Carolina. And pretty much that's all I've known. Um until this last year, I felt called away from it, actually, and to get into the business world and learn what it's like outside of the church. So here I am. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, my um, my dad was a youth pastor growing up and in the ministry. And so, like, we actually lived in a, like, a parsonage. Yeah. So, like, the church owned the house, and that was, like, part of the gig. So, like, I grew up, you know, very much involved with... I don't know. I guess I just understand what it's like to be a youth pastor because my dad did it for my whole childhood. But Oh, I'm sure, man. I'm sure. It's a good life, and it's definitely it's worthy work. It's hard work, but it's it's awesome to see the, the impact you have on the next generation. So, But now I, I kind of focus on my family. I'm, I'm married. Uh, my, my gal's name is Bethany. We've got two boys with another boy on the way this uh, this may. So my, my ministry is more so focused at my house now. So, <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, so how, how did you get into hunting? I guess I know it's kind of like a basic question that a lot of people say, but I, I just feel like it helps me to, to understand you. And I guess on the second part of the question, have you always resided in South Carolina? Is that where you're originally from grew up everything? 
Yeah. Yeah. There's uh we we're actually working on an origins video for my bow shop that covers a lot of this in a more concise way. So I'll try and parallel that with this being concise. Cause I could talk forever about kind of the heritage and how I got to where I am today. But man, the long story short is my dad moved here from England and hunting was one of the hobbies he picked up as a teenager hunting rabbits and then slowly got into deer and Turkey. And so he was first generation hunter. Um, I think he moved to Greenville first, then Easley, which are both in the upstate here in South Carolina. Uh, and that, yeah, I've all, all I've known is hunting and living here in the upstate. I've traveled a lot, but this has always been home for me. And I started hunting with my dad, goodness, as early as four years old, tagging along with him. I think I shot my first deer with him when I was, I shot at my first deer when I was six, completely missed it, like hit a tree 10 feet to the left of it. We have no idea how that happened other than probably jerking the trigger like a, <laughs> most six-year-olds do. <laughs> Wait, so and then I, was that a bow or a rifle? No, that was a rifle. Yeah, so my dad's always been a rifle hunter too. So killed my first year with him with a rifle when I was seven. And then turkeys and, and doves, ducks, all of that kind of fell in line afterwards. But I've always been a rifle hunter with him. He's always been a rifle hunter. He bow hunted a little bit, but I, I don't think he had a good mentor that taught him how. So he just stuck with rifles. So I continued hunting with him growing up. I think I picked up my first bow when I was 14 and uh, one of his best friends just passed down a bow to me and he was the mentor that taught me how to do it at the beginning. A guy named Chris, who was actually at my house yesterday dropping off an old 2008 Bowtech to, for me to put a new string on it. Um, but yeah, he, he gave me this bow. I learned to shoot it with him. And then the fall of, I think me turning 15, so that would have been goodness i'll have to track this back uh i was it was probably 2009 or so 2008 2009 shot my first year with a bow and man i was hooked after that do you remember the the first bow it's probably a hand-me-down like you said do you remember what that was yeah i've actually got it back i gave it to one of my students for the longest time and he dry fired it into his climber and so brought it back to me you know in pieces and i had to get a new cam for it and all that the other day but i've got it in the shop i just put a new cam on it it's actually called a g5 uh qs 31 so it's a solo cam built by g5 it was in their quest series and uh just put a new cam and string on it so i can hunt with it this coming year just for <laughs> nostalgic reasons i i told the the kid i gave it to he's not a kid anymore but i was like hey i've got other bows laying around you can have something newer and better and i'll take this back for nostalgic reasons i'll put it up in the shop one day that's awesome yeah i was i just got that phase four uh, the matthews phase four and i was kind of like going through some of my old cases and like switching some things around and I, I pulled out the the first hand-me-down bow. I, I obviously am gonna keep it for as long as I can, and probably hopefully give it to one of my kids someday and say, "Hey, go try and right. shoot something with it." But um, it was a it's a clear water. I don't even think they make that anymore. But yeah, I just was curious because that's a special thing to have and keep. But um, it absolutely is. I mean, I'll I'll probably not give this one away again. Yeah, <laughs> I regretted it every every day since I gave it away. I was like, man. I'm glad I gave it to this guy because he didn't have a bow, didn't really have anyone to teach him how to hunt. So I kind of did both for a little while, but I was like, I could have gave him one that had less meaning. Goodness. Yeah. That's <laughs> so, hilarious. So no. I'm really curious, like what is the, I'm not very cultured, I guess. I don't travel very much South. Um, yeah, no one does. So like, <laughs> <laughs> I guess when we, we travel South, it's typically, you know, like a vacation, but we don't even do very many of them, but like, what's the culture around, 
hunting like in in South Carolina and kind of in your you know in, in your neck of the woods where you grew up is it like you know is is deer hunting obviously deer hunting's big everywhere but is it like small game hunting bigger there is 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 you know waterfowl bigger there like what what's the culture like right where you are yeah well so this is going to be similar i think to what pennsylvania hunters describe their hunting culture as i believe just from listening to other people talking to other people from other states i feel like that state's similar to south carolina in that whitetail is definitely probably the most hunted animal in south carolina after that would be small game turkeys and then ducks um we used to have a lot more ducks here and duck hunting was more prevalent but we have really gone downhill when it comes to ducks over the last 10 years yeah um but whitetails pr- primarily are the the game that most people hunt and mostly rifles so if a lot of people don't know this but we have in the low state so games three game zones three and four in south carolina open august 15th for rifle so you can hunt <laughs> with a rifle during velvet in the low part of South Carolina, and then you can continue hunting until January 1st. So there's a really long season for our low state. Upstate where I hunt, we open up for uh, bow hunting on September 15th. Uh, muzzleloader starts October 1st, rifle starts normally around October 11th. So there's a big difference between the low country culture and the upstate cu- culture here. Uh, and I've always known the upstate, but I've over the last four years have friends and met you know landowners in the low state where i'm able to go hunt you know during during that opening august season and it's just wild man the amount of deer that are in the low state and the amount of rifle hunters that you know will go kill a bunch of does they got depredation permits for all the farms down there kill some bucks in velvet and you know it's that's a typical <laughs> august afternoon in the low state you know so when you say the low state, is there like a, a geographic line or a highway that like the state says, hey, this is the lower structure? Yeah, pretty much south of Columbia. So Columbia is our capital, middle of our state. Uh, if you go to the southeast of Columbia, pretty much all of the counties, if you drew a line, um, kind of diagonal where Columbia is and cut the state in half, going southeast would be your low state or what we categorize. Mid-state would be around Columbia, and then upstate, you know, is, is basically Newberry and northwest of that. Is that is so? Is the lower portion kind of like known for producing higher caliber bucks, or maybe the opposite? So you're going to get my opinion here. I think South Carolina has great potential for great bucks everywhere. Uh, the low state has higher numbers, so the deer density in the low state is insane. I do think there's thinner antlers in the low state. Maybe it's due to minerals, but there's other counties where, because there's so much corn and soybeans, there's actually so much protein and such, the deer do get huge in the low state as well. So it's it's really dependent on who's farming what and what kind of genetics and minerals are around that area. But I'd say... Your deer density is absolutely larger in the low state. Upstate still has a really good deer population, and I think the upstate holds some bigger deer, uh, in my opinion, as well, but both of which have great chances at killing deer. I mean, South Carolina, if people want to have a challenging out-of-state hunt, South Carolina could be a very good option just because there's deer everywhere, and there are good bucks throughout our state it's just obviously do you know how to hunt big bucks (laughs) right yeah no that's that's pretty wild though you can start hunting with a rifle and 
you can actually shoot bucks starting in August with a rifle. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty wild. Wow. Yeah, I don't know how much you know about Michigan, but kind of like a a trending topic that you hear quite often amongst hunters is like we have a you know our our rifle season opens up on November fifteenth, which is peak rut here, and a lot yeah. a lot of people would like to see it later or um, just not as long. Um, the other thing about Michigan too is that we're a two buck state. I'm not sure what it's like there, but that's two really common things that I've been hearing a lot lately is, Hey, let's go to a one buck or B let's like move the start of the rifle opener or adjust the dates in some way, shape or form, because Michigan's not typically known as a, a big deer state, but, um, yeah, that's, I don't know. Do you guys have like common conversations amongst hunters there? Is it pretty, pretty well even keeled over there? Yeah, there's, there's conversations. Um, and there's a lot of opinions, but ultimately I think we're pretty spoiled. We've got a, we can't complain about much. I mean, if you want to hunt more, you go to the low state. We have tons of tags. I mean, I was able to kill six deer this year. Um, let's see, I think three bucks, three does. And I could have killed up to 10 and that's over the counter resident tags too. So we, there's not a lot to complain about in South Carolina right now, other than if you're a big buck hunter, there are a lot of kind of, sub tribes that are in the boat of we need to kill less deer you know and restrict antlers there's a lot of those arguments going around but when it comes to season opening no everybody's i think pretty happy a lot of people wish that the upstate opened august 15th as well but i i don't see that happening in our state so right yeah what's the uh for you what is the private public land like where are you typically going Pretty much private for me, but that's because I've grown up here and I have a ton of uh, opportunities. I mean, I'm blessed with a couple of landowners that own a decent amount of, of tracks that I can hunt. I mean, a lot of them have begun selling to, you know, developers and spec buildings, neighborhoods, things like that, which is sad, but our, our area is exploding, so I, I understand. But the majority of my hunting, I'd say I'm 75 to 90% private and then 15 to 10% public each year uh in the state of south carolina and we have great public land all within an hour of my house but when i'm able to hunt private and take my son along with me or you know take a friend with me who's new to bow hunting it's just so much easier to do it on private where i know what to expect and i know the deer i know the area i know where i can put someone who's new to bow hunting and hopefully give them a chance of success and until i do have less private to hunt that'll still be the breakdown for me, I think. Cause I, I'm the guy that I think we all own the public land, but if you have good private tracks to hunt, there's a lot of people who don't have that and they should, you know, they should obviously be hunting public. But if you've got a lot of private land, that's, you know, great to hunt. I mean, heck, take advantage of that and use that blessing instead of crowding public lands just cause YouTube makes it cool these days, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. No, that's, that's a very interesting perspective. And I, I would say that in the past, um, I, I'm, I was very fortunate to, you know, get a piece of my own ground a couple of years ago and that's completely changed. Like my, I guess I wouldn't say it can change, change the passion that I have for deer hunting, but it's just like evolved the way that I'm approaching hunting because now I have the opportunity more so than I did in the past to like, you know, follow bucks and, and quite 
frankly understand them better and, and you know get them to the next year whatever you know what i'm saying so um but i would agree the kind of the percentages you laid out like in the state of michigan for me i'm very similar to you it sounds like and i have a very similar perspective so yeah yeah so you said uh you said you had a mentor his name was chris that got you in into kind of like tinkering with bows tell, tell me about the the evolution of that and kind of how you got going into precision archery outfitting i want to understand that better yeah so that's um that's a pretty fun dynamic actually so chris his name's chris smith great bow hunter he's killed a lot of big deer in the upstate here he's he's one of those guys that not many people know about he's not on social media and flaunting anything at all he is just a guy who loves to hunt and hunt with his bow and like he killed a big 10 point this year uh this past fall and was texting me during it he went dark for a few minutes and then text back like his hands shaking he's like hey i just stuck a big 10 you know but <laughs> he uh he's those one of those guys that basically taught me the foundational you know form things when i was 14 15 and and then basically was like, hey, you know woodsmanship, you know how to find deer, so now just get closer to them than you did with your rifle and make a good shot when they're broadside. So that was the extent of that, and he then let me learn on my own, which was good. Uh, there was a balance of him spending time with me in practice and walking me through things. He did put me in a couple stands hunting hogs to early on so I could shoot a hog with my bow and get used to actually killing an animal with my equipment. But the evolution is I quickly, when I was able to drive, become more independent, you know, go to bow shops, go see other, you know, gear that you can start upgrading to. Obviously, I got bit by the the gear bug at that point. It's like, all right, let me get the, the latest, greatest thing and upgrade my equipment. And that's when I started spending more time in bow shops around here. And honestly, South Carolina's got some good bow shops. Um, I never started precision archery outfitting from a place of everyone sucks. Let me do this because I'm going to do it better. It was more so everyone does a good job, but I want to take it to a level where I can shoot fixed blade broadheads at 50, 60 yards. And my bow is so tuned that uh, I can shoot a bear shaft at 30 and 40 yards with my fletched arrows to make sure my, my bow truly is operating at peak efficiency and is everything's coming out square and plumb and, and it's tuned, you know, and, and shops don't have time to do that, frankly. Um, both shops make money moving product and, and <laughs> namely moving accessories and bows, right? Nobody really makes money doing super tunes and such. So I started the bow shop here the last few years because my friends started bringing me their bows to tune them or restring them or build them custom arrows to their setup with their goals in mind. And ultimately, man, it just, they brought their friends who brought their friends. And I got to the point where I'm like, I don't know all these people reaching out to me to do this pretty niche work. So I'm going to create my LLC and make it where I've got some liability coverage and insurance and things like that, where I can basically let this hobby pay for itself. And now here we are where it's gotten too big for my house to the point where I'm as big as I want it to be right now. And I'm going to focus on more so YouTube and social media content creation type stuff. I hate using the word content. It's just such a buzzword right now, yeah. but, but you know what I mean? Like, I think I'm going to work on inspiring people just to bow hunt better by making sure their equipment is precise, you know, and, and is efficient until I do know what my next step is. Like, do I buy out one of the bow shops here in the upstate and actually have brick and mortar, you know, storefront, um, 
but yeah, I guess I, I didn't give you the time frame though, but you know, 14, 15 years old, Chris is teaching me how to do all this. He was building my arrows back then uh, and then taught me how to do that when I was probably 16, 17. Started building my own arrows first and really started making them, I mean, as good as I could, make sure they spin true, all of those things. And then ultimately got to the point of paper tuning myself, bear shaft tuning my bows myself. That led to me wanting to put on my own strings, um, you know, basically do everything myself and not have to take it to a shop and I could tell every time I took my stuff to a shop, they're like, Oh, here comes that picky guy. Cause he wants his stuff done a certain way. Yeah. So I'd say when I was, I don't know, late teens, early twenties, I started buying my own equipment and really early twenties, mid twenties. I'm 29 now. Uh, I've been doing my own bow work for seven, eight years at this point. Um, in the last two years I've been doing it for others. And actually I've got to ship out a dozen arrows I built for a guy in Tennessee today. So that's kind of it, man. I don't know if that, that was more of a shotgun pattern answer, I guess. No, no. I mean, like I always talk about having like a guy, you know, like a guy that I can go to for this, you know, and a guy who I can go for that. And, and, um, I think there's a lot of people out there, me included, where there's a lot of excuses, right? Like I, I claim, you know, and I don't know if I claim it out loud, but in my mind, I, I think of myself as like a, a, I take hunting very seriously. Right. And, um, I, I'm, I'm still one of those guys who had, I have not dove into like making my own arrows and I do have issues when I want to use a fixed blade to get it to fly true, even at 30, 35 yards. Like I know that I can take it to another level. Um, but I have all of these, you know, whatever it may be, you know, obligations, work, kids, wh whatever it may be. I feel like there's a large majority of people that do want to super tune their bow, as you said, and, and really get it tight. You know what I'm saying? Like get everything yeah. just precision machine, like just a system. And, um, yeah. no, I think that what you're doing is awesome. And the fact that you're growing it to the point where you're out, you know, it's too big for your garage and your house. And like, that's amazing, man. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. And I wish you were in my neck of the woods. Cause I would, I would befriend you and let you do everything to my <laughs> bow. Like, well, I mean, and try that's, and learn from you. So, yeah, I mean that, and that's the one thing I would tell people, cause I, I get this question a lot is, you know, where's the line? Where should I spend the money to get my own equipment to learn how to do this, do it myself, and then, or pay someone else to do that? And I, I tell people, you have to take a diagnosis of your life. If you don't have time and you don't enjoy tinkering and learning, then probably buying all the equipment and doing it yourself is not the best move, right? Um, and that's where you just have to be honest with yourself. And that, and then the flip side is you have to be okay with paying someone else to do it well, right? And the what I would advise everyone is if you're taking your bow to, to get it tuned and someone else is shooting to tune your bow rather than you, that bow is not tuned because the way you shoot and grip that bow is different than the tech or someone else. So the way to, and I'm hoping this starts a trend in bow shops. Like what I do isn't cheap. You know, if people come to me, I'm starting at 80 bucks per session, whether it's a tune or a, a lesson, if it's kids, it's going to be cheaper than that. But like for an adult where I'm, breaking this down and making sure you do things correctly. Like it's not cheap, but I'm going to also make sure when you leave, you, you are shooting those broadheads at 40 yards and they're right with your fletched arrows, you yeah. know, and we're going to correct your form. If your form is too bad to shoot a bow well, 
I'm going to tell you that and say, Hey, there's no way to tune this bow because your form is so terrible, you know? (laughs) And so I would just tell people diagnose your situation and then be willing to find that tech who's going to let you shoot the bow and tune the bow to how you shoot or correct your form so that you can achieve things like that. Um, and be willing to pay for it because I, I do know shops that are starting to do this one-on-one training and it's not cheap, but it's worth it because when you can shoot your bow at an animal knowing that that arrow is traveling straight and it's going to hit that animal where you're aiming and it's going to carry the momentum through the animal because it's not going into the animal sideways like an untuned uh, bow will do, you know, it, it's worth it. But that's, that's obviously the whole reason I started this thing is <laughs> because I believe that. So do you do like, like if, let's say you have a client come in and, you know, maybe they're like me, they just got a new bow, right? They bought a new bow. They went, you know, they got everything kind of set up. Like, are you teaching, are you taking time to like, for me, what I look for when I go to like pay for something and I'm like willing to pay the money for it, I'm looking for sometimes like over time, I'd like to learn things, right? Like I don't want to always have to be reliant. Like, is that something you're doing is taking a person in saying, Hey, listen, like, this is why I'm doing this. And like, this is how you do it. And then over time, do you like try and wean them or do you, do you do something different? Yeah. Yeah. So a hundred percent, I'll walk you through everything I'm doing. And I, if any of my existing customers or friends listen to this podcast, I'm, I hope they would agree with this and, and, and testify to that. This is how it works. But as I'm paper tuning, which say we start with your face four and you, we're putting everything on the bow. I'm setting everything to spec, you know, 13, 16 center shot, dead through the burger hole, maybe a little high in the burger hole, depending on your draw length. Making sure your spine is correct to your draw weight. We're going to go over all of that. We're going to shoot it through paper and get a paper tear that is a bullet hole, probably with a fletched arrow. Then we'll take it to an, a bear shaft. And as I'm adjusting your rest or I'm shimming your cams, I'm telling you why I'm doing those things so that we end up getting that bullet hole through paper. And then to take it to the next step, which is like the super tune, you know, this is the way you make sure your bow is ultimately good to go. Take a bear shaft outside, shoot at 20, 30 yards, make sure your bear shaft is hitting with your flesh. And we're talking 164th movements on your rest at that point. Um, and then screw on a broadhead, make sure the broadhead hits where you're aiming with your fletched, and then you're good to go. But during that whole process, I'm going to be explaining to you why we're moving the rest a certain direction to achieve the arrow path that we want, right? And I'm also going to be explaining, hey, this paper tear happened. I didn't touch anything. Say, I didn't move your rest. I didn't move anything on your bow. You shot three in a row, and there were three different tears. What does that tell you? That tells you that your grip or your face pressure influenced the arrow because we didn't change anything about the equipment. Therefore, you being the dependent variable, um, you cause something in your grip and face pressure. So, yeah, I I really hope that when someone comes to me at some point, they don't need me anymore because they've gleaned from times and sessions what they need to do this themselves and, and have that option. Yeah. What is like going along this, like this same kind of a model here, this, this case study that we're talking about with me and my phase four, right? So what would you recommend if I come to you and, Hey, um, there's somebody out there, maybe they, maybe they want to start doing some of these things, right? They want to invest in some of this equipment. Maybe they want to start with arrows. Maybe they want to start with like a, you know, a simple bow vice. Like what, what do you recommend? Um, what do you recommend? Like somebody, 
how they start in the most affordable, cost-effective like way? Like, is it starting with arrows? Yeah, probably. I mean, most presses are multiple. You're going to be looking at three to seven hundred dollars for a bow press, depending on which one you choose. Um, the best, I guess, the gateway, if you would, to get into this would be building your own arrows first. Um, I'd say even before that, though, would be tuning your own bow. It is you don't need a paper tuner. All you need to do is take a dozen arrows, cut the fletchings off of one, and shoot at twenty yards. And I mean, micro adjustments on your rest to get your bear shaft shooting with your fletch shafts. That would be the first thing I'd tell someone to try: is cut the fletchings off of an arrow and tune your bow so that your bear shaft and your fletch shafts hit in the same place at twenty, then maybe even thirty yards. That's the first step I'd say because that's going to get you addicted to this. Oh, wait a second! I can do this. I can tune my bow. Um, yeah, the second thing I'd say is build your own arrows, grab a, a Bitsenberger jig or an Arizona easy fletch. That one's going to be pretty cheap. I use bits and burgers. I've got like four or five of them lined up when I build arrows. Um, but that's, you're going to be in the hole for a hundred bucks, buy some cheap shafts. Easton 6.5 millimeter bow hunters are some great arrows for the money right now. Grab some of those, get some fletchings, fletch your own arrows. You're going to have to have an arrow saw to cut those though. So. You're going to have to probably spend a couple hundred dollars to get into that. Um, but I'd say that first, build your arrows and just have the satisfaction of knowing the arrows you're shooting in target and at animals or arrows that you put together. That's pretty cool. After that, I would say getting a press. The Easy Green from Last Chance is probably the best press out there for the money. Grab something like that so you can start restringing your bows, you know, shimming cams, serving in peeps or drop away cords, things like that. I'd probably go in that process, arrows first, and then get into the press and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, the money, I, I, I get that it adds up because, you, like you said, you need a saw, you need a jig, you need the glue, you need all these things. But I don't know. I feel like I'm this guy that you're talking to. Like, there's got to be other people like me out there who just, for whatever reason, just haven't made the dive. And maybe it's time, maybe it's money, maybe it's both. Um, but... I, so you just said literally cut the fletchings off of your arrow and shoot it at 20 yards. I feel like I've done that before, and the arrow just went, like, way off. Does that mean something? Yeah, I would start with your form first and make sure – this is going to be so hard to explain, but I'll try. But your grip hand, obviously, you don't grip it like a hammer, and I also don't want you to grip it where your thumb is the only point of pressure. You grip it in between that, right? Um where you break your wrist, you know, make sure that you're not inducing torque by grabbing onto the bow too too tightly. Sure. Make sure your thumb and your and your pointer finger knuckles aren't choked up into the bow so much that that's inducing torque. So I, I most of the time tell anybody who's shooting just wild, drop your grip an eighth to a quarter of an inch down so you're not choked up into the um oh goodness, what's that called on the riser? Anyways, the shelf. Yeah. And then shoot again. And if that arrow is still going crazy, then I know, okay, we should go back and set everything back to spec. Because you should, if your bow is somewhat tuned, be able to shoot a bear shaft and a fletch and hit the target at 20. So, if it's not even hitting the target, then, yeah, it's either form needs to be reconsidered, the whole bow needs to put back to spec, or something like that. But, I mean, like, like I'm at 20 yards. I got a fletched arrow, and I'm piping the target just right where I'm right where I'm aiming. I take that exact same arrow, I take a blade and cut those guys off, take the take the fletchings right off. Mm -hmm. 
I feel like I've done this and like the arrow, like it didn't explode, but it like, it didn't like hit the target. It just went like, like kind of just into the grass and didn't even. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the time that's going to, if it's that bad, it's most of the time telltale to either face pressure or grip that I would first look at. Second would be your bow is not tuned at all <laughs> because because <laughs> um, you got to think when an arrow comes out of the bow there's flexing that's going on inside that arrow i mean it is uh flexing back and forth as it leaves what those fletchings do is within a couple of feet those fletchings start to stabilize that arrow and spin it a certain direction so that arrow is then put on a track like a flight path to to fly straighter when you cut the fletchings off you are getting what is purely directionally happening coming out of your bow. Right. So if the if it's sitting in the rest too far away from the riser and you shoot it, that bear shaft has no guidance with fletchings anymore. It's immediately going to kick a certain way and it's not going to fly straight. So yeah. It would be I'm realizing it would be tough to like zoom somebody and tune their bow with them. But <laughs> Oh, it's probably <laughs> I do a impossible. Zoom meeting. Yeah. Because it'd be one of those things that if I watched you, I could probably see pretty quick, oh, you're digging your face into the string, and that's having an immediate cause and effect on the arrow. Or your grip is, is you know, too up and down and straight like you're gripping a hammer. Or maybe your grip is too choked up into the shelf, and it's influencing the bow too much. Yeah, It could be something like that. It could also be timing. Your cams could not be timed, and one cam is rotating first, which causes the arrow's tail end to kick up a certain way or kick down. That could also be what's going on. Yeah. There's a lot of things. It's always, all right, here's the 17 boxes to check. Let's check all these boxes and figure out trial and error what's actually happening here. Yeah. <laughs> so like my form on my grip and I'm, I'm not trying to take too much time on this specific case, you know, case study, whatever, but I just think it's interesting and I'm the one doing an interview and so I can ask whatever I want, but anyway, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I don't like, you know, how you, some people like they'll, they'll grab you know, their, their grip and just, you can see their knuckles are white on it. Um, I don't necessarily do that, but I have a really long draw. I'm like six, three. I think I have like a 31, 31 and a half inch draw. Yeah. And so like lots of times I'll like, you can see the pin, like I shoot a single pin and you can like see when your grip's wrong because all of a sudden your pin, which normally like when you, when you're looking at it, like you're supposed to, it's just, it's like a single pin, obviously. But if you torque your grip at all, all of a sudden you can see that it's like, it's fatter. It's because you're, you're literally twisting your grip sideways. Right. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. that's something that I've noticed a whole bunch more. It's like, even though I, you know, my, my grip isn't perfect. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's perfect, but I think that a lot of people are, can you know, misconceived on, on their, on their actual draw coming back it, it can easily torque and that I'm, I'm i'm a guy that does that a lot i think so i'm gonna i'm gonna yeah. definitely take some time though and and like you said start start simple take a take an arrow cut the fletchings off of it and try and get it to to fly true at 20 i think that's a really good first step and place to start and just kind of work from there so i really like that man i'm, I'm glad we dove into yeah. that yeah no it's that's part of the fun that's part of what I want everybody to do because yeah. that means when your arrow leaves the bow, your 
what people don't understand when your bow is not tuned you are missing out on momentum going through that animal because that arrow instead of hitting perfectly straight and and perpendicular say to a broadside deer it's going in at an angle so you're immediately instead of the momentum being stacked on top of each other because it's a straight arrow flying straight it's now a arrow flying slightly sideways so your point of impact is not getting the ultimate push from the momentum because the arrow is not flying straight and the momentum's not stacked behind that arrow does that make sense 100 percent. yeah so a lot of pass-throughs don't happen not because you didn't do it didn't make a good shot or your broad hit sucks most of the time it's because your arrow is flying a little bit sideways yeah so yeah and that's that can go into fixed uh, fixed versus mechanical a lot of times why you don't get that deployment you want Oh, exactly. I mean, heck, this is going to piss off so many people, but part of the reason that that mechanical heads are so popular is because you can shoot them from an untuned bow and it will hit the place that you're aiming, like with, where you've been aiming with your practice arrows. Yeah. But mechanicals get a bad rap because that means most of the time people who are shooting mechanicals are not shooting tuned bows. Therefore, that mechanical is not getting a fair shot at how well it actually works and uh, opens upon impact because it's coming from an arrow that's slightly flying sideways, you know? Yeah. So I think mechanicals could be way more lethal if we tuned our bows as meticulously for mechanicals as we do for when people switch to fixed blades. Yeah. So anyways, <laughs> no, I, I, I think mechanicals are fantastic and I think mechanicals work very well. Um, as long as there's, they're coming from tuned bows. Like I'm not scared of mechanicals at all. No, I, I actually really like that you said that because, I mean, I, I don't know, I think we either of us can sit here and say that's 100% the truth, but, like, I bet you that's pretty darn accurate. You know what I mean? Like, that's <laughs> it's probably pretty darn accurate. Yeah. I mean, and, and here's the thing. Most of them are flimsy blades, so are they as strong as fixed blades? No. But we're talking about a deer, white-tailed deer, at least in this conversation. Yeah. It doesn't take a lot to kill a deer. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I hope we get I, some I'd people that. writing in on this. I'd love to hear the feedback on this one. Oh, uh, there's going to be people who are like, you're an idiot. I've shot so many deer in the heart and they've still lived. And I, I know a friend on video last year shot a buck in, uh, Iowa heart. It looked like a heart shot with an Exodus fixed blade, QAD Exodus fixed blade. The deer was alive two or three days later on camera with a little scar on his right behind his shoulder. So like there are times where it's just dang, they're tough critters. Yeah. But most of the time, I feel like if you punch them in the lungs and in the heart, they're they're gonna die. Yeah. So 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 what is it about tuning a bow that you like so much? Like what is the number one thing? Like you just, I mean, explain that to me because obviously you're passionate about it. Um, well, there's, I'll, I'll also be up front. There's days I'm tired of doing it. Uh, <laughs> like, like there's days I'm like, man, I don't want to build another set of arrows. I don't want to tune another bow. I think there's two things that keep the passion going for me. One, I do enjoy problem solving and I have worked with my heart and my brain for so long. I mean, a third of my life I've spent my, my career's have been using my brain and my heart, right? Leadership, uh, discipling people, things like that. So working with my hands is always refreshing. I mean, whether it's cutting grass, working on a bow, building arrows, actually going hunting, when I'm able to get involved with my body 
and and do tasks and solve problems it's just refreshing so that's one but two it's that greater perspective that if i tune this bow well this person shooting this bow has a better chance at killing the animals he's going to shoot at or she's going to shoot at um if this arrow is built square it has a better chance of spinning true which increases the efficiency that these animals were hunting have a you know they're they're killed efficiently right so i think my mission statement of the bow shop to you know outfit people to bow hunt better with excellent service and precise service and then gear that works and that's rugged that that's kind of what makes me tick is man i'm helping people bow hunt better through this you know that's a phenomenal answer i don't know if you had that teed up or not but that was beautiful i, I love that i mean you are quite literally helping people kill their target animal like that's quite literally what you're doing that's it's pretty special yeah man well it's fun I it's fun it. and it's really it's really fun to get a text from someone with their bow over uh, a doe that they killed and it ran 20 yards and died within sight you know or their target buck i had multiple guys kill elk this past year and send me pictures of their bow and their arrows with next to their elk and they're like dude without you this doesn't happen and i'm like well you there's still great techs out there it's not just me but it is the commitment to do this as well as we can that's the thing that we share and that's the thing that we celebrate i love it all right let's talk about this buck man so yeah just really quick i said it in the beginning but scooter had a epic encounter um, he submitted the video footage of a, of a hunt that he had filmed on his cell phone with one of our products, the mag pro. And I want to hear, I want to hear the nitty gritty of this. It sounded like you had some history with the Bach. It sounded like, um, there's some good juicy details. So like start from the beginning and give it to me and I'm going to ask questions throughout. Yeah. So this property, um, it's only a 50 acre piece, about 12, 15 minutes from my house. I've been hunting it for seven, eight years. It's a guy I go to church with. He's a fantastic guy. I mean, we enjoy being out there and just hanging out, taking care of his land. And he normally, let's say this, most of the, the property is a hay field. It's only about 10 acres of woods and this big creek that you see in the video. So for the last seven, eight years of hunting this place, there's hogs, there's deer. I've never seen a very mature buck out there until a few years ago. So Needless to say, there's pressure all around me. We're in the upstate South Carolina. Everyone is hunting. I mean, if there is land that can be hunted, it's hunted by someone. That's pretty much rule of thumb around here. So pressure is definitely felt. A lot of guys around me there, I didn't know many of my neighbors until these last few years, um, but I, I could hear shots all the time, so I knew. Deer getting killed, there's pressure. And I had cameras up and never saw mature deer. Well, about three, four years ago, it seemed like I started to see a few more deer with some age on them, like three and a half year old, eight points. Um, there was a decent nine point two years ago that one of the neighbors killed. So anyways, it seemed like whether pressure was letting off or our tag system with the antler restrictions that we implemented in South Carolina a few years ago, maybe that was helping, but it seemed like there were some deer getting age. And last year there were two deer I was chasing. It was an eight point that I think is the one I killed this year. And there was a buck that we called Quattro. We normally don't nickname deer here, but this deer was so unique. It had, it was a humongous four point. Like he had a main beam and he had a, it wasn't even a brow tine. It was like a G, a G2. And it just forked up right outside the ears. He was at least three and a half, probably four and a half years old last year. 
And uh, those are the two bucks we were hunting last year. So that we call them Quattro, the four point, and then an eight point right at the ears, right maybe outside, but I think that's the deer I killed this year. Never got a chance at the eight point because this place, and it's 10 acres, the way I hunt this property is it is solely getting lucky on transitioning. Like deer have to be transitioning for me to kill them on this property. They'll bed on this property sometimes. Uh, there are some good thick areas in it, but it doesn't hold bucks as much as it hold does, holds does. So it's basically a rut transition uh, place to hunt if you want to kill one of these big deer. And last year, my buddy, his name's Taylor. I'll make sure he listens to this so I can give him a hard time. But I put him in the spot I killed this buck this year, put him in that area, that creek crossing between basically a pine thicket over to my left and this uh, across the creek is like a swamp privet thicket to the right. And those deer will transition that creek crossing right there to essentially does. Well, he was on that spot where I killed the buck last year and he shot over, I think he shot over the top or maybe under the belly of the quattro buck. Like had him at 40 yards and missed him. And he was freaking out. Like it was one of those moments where he texts me, he's like, this quattro just came out. He's with two does. He's at the creek. Oh my gosh, freaking out. I'm like, dude, kill him. Let's go. Let's get this done. And then I get the dreaded text. I missed it. So, <laughs> so anyways, Quattro was still alive. And I came into this season knowing Quattro's still alive. The bigger eight point, he, he should still be alive. But there was nothing else on cameras that I was excited about. This year, I get a picture of this big eight point that I ended up killing. Um, oh, goodness. Like at the end of September, he was just crossing through. And then I got another picture of him two weeks later, another picture of him two weeks later. It was like he was on this pattern of every two weeks he'd, he'd pass through this property, the big A point. And then I never got a picture of this four point called Quattro again. He may have died of old age. I don't know. Maybe a neighbor killed him, but we haven't seen him. So this, uh, this big deer, I just call him the big eight. He was on that every two week rotation, it seemed. And he would cross where this creek crossing is at night. And sometimes he'd go on the other side of the property, which is close to a bamboo thicket uh, and actually close to the road. But he'd be over there checking a scrape in the middle of the night. And he did that once or twice this year. So I just knew this buck is not living here. He's not spending a ton of time here. The only chance I have to kill him is to catch him transitioning and rotating properties or checking for does. Um, so I hunted him, I don't know, man, probably I'd say 12 to 14 sits this year in that area. And that was with, you know, Taylor would go with me sometimes and because he knew about this buck too. And we tag team and we were also there to hunt pigs as much as deer. So anytime a pig comes by, we kill it though. Cause I've told the landowner, you know, <laughs> you want the pigs gone, we're going to kill them. So, hunt so this hold deer on real lot. quick. Is that yeah. is like a pretty common occurrence? Like if you're going to go out hunting, like what are the chances you're going to see a group of hogs come by? I'd say in my area is 25% of the time you're going to see pigs. Wow. Sometimes 50, man. It, it, it really depends on the area. Where I'm at, um, closer to Georgia has a lot more pigs here in South Carolina. And where I was at was more North Anderson County, which is not known for a ton of pigs. But this creek I was that you'll see in the video, there's always hogs traveling up and down that creek. So... Yeah, but it's pretty it's pretty common to have hogs here now. Gotcha. And most landowners want them gone. So a lot of the hunters these days are either trapping them or killing everyone they see night hunting. You know, if you see a pig, you kill it. Hmm. That that's that's definitely 
an unspoken rule here. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, okay. So does that kind of frame things up? What oh, you... you're doing a great job. I mean, I'm right, I'm right there with you. All right, cool. So here's where we're at. <laughs> I knew I was going on a Kentucky and Ohio two week trip, one week in Kentucky, one week in Ohio during the rut. And in South Carolina, I don't care what anyone says. No one really knows when the rut happens in South Carolina because sometimes it's Halloween. Sometimes it's in the middle of November. Sometimes it's the first of December. And I don't care what anyone says. I think we have multiple strains of genetics here and certain does go into heat at certain times. So it, it can be any time between Halloween and the first of December. <laughs> wow. Uh, and there's obviously, yes, a second rut where does are, who didn't get bred come back into Estrus. But I just knew I hadn't killed this buck. It was getting close to Halloween. There's, uh, I hadn't had him on camera for like two weeks. I was waiting on, like, this is the time he's going to come through again. I hunted one day close to Halloween. Didn't see a buck. Didn't see a doe. Didn't see anything. Checked cameras a few days later. And like that night, he came through again and did the exact same thing he's been doing crossing that creek. So I'm like, okay, he's on this two-week thing. It's just, is it going to be during daylight when he crosses here? Or is it always going to be at night? So I pretty much said, I'm going out of state. I'm going to forget this buck for a little bit. Hopefully he survives. I'll try again when I get back and, you know, around Thanksgiving. So I go hunt Kentucky. I think I left on the 6th of November, something like that. Hunted Ohio, came back empty handed. Well, my buddy that I took with me, uh, he killed a buck in Ohio pretty good, like 125 inch eight point. Uh, but come back from those trips, spend time with family, recoup for a little bit, and go check these cameras. And he came back like two and a half weeks after uh, Thanksgiving or uh, after Halloween. So I'm like, all right, I, I know this buck is doing something every two weeks on this property. So I've got to just put in my time and maybe I'll get a shot. So is it like, Honestly, is like the two weeks like pretty, like almost to the day, two weeks? Or is it just like... I mean, yeah, almost to the day. Wow. It was... It was a pretty weird thing, but I have found that there are bucks who, and I've done this year to year as well. When bucks get age on them around here, they are very much uh, set in their ways. Like I have hunted a buck in a different property years ago. I had him on camera in daylight, like at 10 a.m. I think it was October 17th. The next year I was on that same ridge, 10 a.m., October 17th, and I saw him. And he was about 50 yards away. Couldn't get a shot on him. The next year I killed him, I think the 18th in the middle of the morning. Um, so it's like, if you see deer, especially mature bucks at a certain time or on a certain rotation, like every two weeks, they've got this pattern that they're set in and they're most likely going to do it again, whether it's year to year or every two weeks. And it seemed like this buck had a, he had a way of, of transitioning properties that seem to always bring him back through this property every two weeks. Um, and it wasn't, I think like one week, it was two and a half weeks of a distance between one picture and the next. So, and I'll also go ahead and say right here, in order to kill this buck, I knew I have to get lucky. Like there is no, there's no way I kill this buck. Cause I just pattern him and trick him and figure him out. I'm going to have to get lucky cause he's been coming through when it's dark, like he hasn't even shown his face in daylight on this property. So I'll also throw that out there. 
I think I'm good at killing deer. I don't know if I'm a big buck serial killer like Dan Infault or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel, uh, you. I feel you. Uh, I'm definitely the guy who will admit, I think it's 90% luck most of the time if you actually kill these big deer. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, I, I think it was December 3rd. I did Thanksgiving with the family. I hunted that property one time around Thanksgiving and I saw a decent eight point, but not him. Had a bunch of does come past. I was really tempted to shoot a doe and I didn't. Um, Cause at this point we haven't killed anything on that property this year. So I, but I took note, like all these deer are doing what I want them to do. There's a ton of deer moving in here. I'm going to check this camera one more time. Pro probably going to give it one or two more hunts. And then I'll just say that he beat me this year. Check the camera, no picture of him. And at this point, it, it's getting close to that two-week mark from Thanksgiving. Like that next week would be the time he would probably come through, right? So I said, all right, I'm going to give it a hunt at some point a week after Thanksgiving because that'll be around the two-week mark. And uh, got there super early. And I can get into this, where this tree stand is set. I put it there for a reason. I normally am very mobile either hunt from a saddle or a, or a lock on and hunt a different tree every time I hunt, no matter the property. But in this location, I could get to this tree, climb this tree, get out. And most of the time the deer wouldn't know I was in there. Um, so I said, all right, December 3rd, I'm going in super early. I'm going to set up and sit until I just can't sit anymore. Probably sit through lunch and then head home. Well, climbed up, texted Taylor because he's got history on his property with me. Told him, I'm like, all right, if he comes through, it could be it could be this morning. And, dude, lo and behold, about, an, I don't know, 30 minutes after it gets daylight, I see on the left in the pine thicket some movement, and I thought I saw a doe, and I thought I saw a buck behind her. So I'm like, oh, goodness, there's, you know, some rut activity going on. I throw up my binos. I can't really see what's going on. And then I hear, and I think – in the previous podcast, you said I was out in the middle of nowhere on this property. Here's the thing. Most of my properties I bow hunt are close to houses. <laughs> so <laughs> I heard, and there's a house like, I would say from the location I'm hunting, it's probably four, 400 yards, 500 yards to my left. I heard them getting ready for school and work, shutting doors. You know, I could just tell something's going on in the house. Well, these deer start coming my way. It's like they kind of got spooked by that. Maybe they let the dogs out because that neighbor does let out dogs and they'll run down in the woods sometimes hmm. but anyways i start to see these deer working back toward me from that thicket throw up the binos and i see antlers and i'm like okay wait a second those don't look like young deer antlers those, those could be the big boy yeah and i didn't know for sure though because they stayed in the thick and i thought he had a doe with him but i think she ended up leaving they stayed in the thick and they were about 80 yards away and I grunted a few times, did some bleats. I made it sound like, you know, I'm a buck and a doe playing around over here on this creek crossing. And then I just was quiet and stayed still because I couldn't see them anymore. And I knew they could probably pick me out. It's late season, December 3rd. I don't have a lot of foliage around me. Like I just got to stay still and hunker down. Well, I did that, stayed still, hunkered down. And I don't know, it was probably six to eight minutes. Nothing happened, didn't see anything moving. And I'm just like, what just happened? Did he just walk directly away from me? Well, as I'm having those doubts, I start to see the ears flicker through the thicket at about 45, 50 yards away, and I see the antlers. I'm like, oh, that's the big eight. That, they're kind of squared. Like, I could just tell, like, that's, that's him. He was by himself, no other deer around. I'm like, okay, he... <laughs> 
he very well could come across this creek where he's always crossed every two weeks in the middle of the night. He could do this right now this morning. So I grab my bow, and that's when I take my phone and turn on the camera, put it on the Mag Pro. And when I start filming, it's on my bow, on the Mag Pro, on my bow. And I'll also say this. I've shot five deer with a bow this year. All five I have videos of from the Mag Pro. So <laughs> I, freaking, awesome, I freaking love that thing. One of my deer this year was with a rifle that I didn't video. That was with my son. But my five deer with the bow this year all have videos of, which is pretty cool. That is sweet, man. <clears throat> yeah. And so I video him, and that's where the video uh, that, that you see that I sent you guys, and it's been on the on Instagram, I basically say, hey, the, there's the buck. He starts walking in, and he does exactly what I set that stand for. I mean, he comes down the trail that – I knew this is the trail he's always on when I get pictures of him. And it just happened to be in the middle of the day this time or in daylight. He gets to, oh, goodness, it was 23 yards. So I knew the trail he's on was 23 yards. I rolled my sight to 23, made sure that the Mag Pro, the phone was still recording, drew back whenever he got behind a tree. You'll notice that in the video. He gets behind a bigger tree close to the creek, and when he does that, I draw he walks down the, the trail, gets to 23. I bleed at him. He stops. I was shooting a mechanical broadhead, <laughs> which most people, you know, I most of the time shoot fixed, but my bow's tuned. I was excited about it. I wanted to try these severs. And, man, I center punched this buck. When I stopped him and let go of the arrow and kind of executed my shot, I knew, like, this thing is smoked, absolutely smoked. I just knew it from the beginning of letting that shot go. He kicks, crosses the creek, starts to wobble, falls over. I mean, within 35 yards of the shot of the point of impact, he had died. And I'm just sitting there trying – I'm trying to video it, trying to keep my, you know, thoughts together. And I'm wigging out. My legs are shaking, about to fall out of the stand, all of that, you know. And uh, the story of the Big 8 was done right there. Dude, that was an was awesome buck, too. I mean – pretty dark chocolate rack on him the footage yeah you like, can tell he stayed in that's why i call him the he was a timber beast but really he was a swamp well, all these guys in the south call him swamp donkeys this was a swamp donkey i mean he he's got a chocolate rack his legs were black his tail was black it's like he beds in the swamp i mean yeah <laughs> he was a very unique deer yeah super sweet deer i mean and the footage too is like i mean like what 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 was the the phone and the bow that you were using? Can you call that out? Yeah, phone was which I get the new phone every year. Part of it is my job. Part of it is I do like the video and with the bow shop, I like to have the best camera because I don't buy camera equipment. But I will use my phone for stories and videos. And and once I saw y'all's product, I'm like, I'm definitely going to start videoing hunts. So it's the iPhone 14 Pro. Is that the newest one that it came out with last year? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's that. I think it's the iPhone 14 Pro. It's not the XL. I don't like the really big phones. So it's just the typical size. And then my bow was the V3X 29. Uh, and if you look at the pictures from the kill, like I'm the guy that I do like stabilizers. I've got cust I get custom stabilizers made that are 13 inches long in the front, eight to eight and a half inches long for the back bar. Um. I was testing out that new dialed Arxos site for the crew at dialed this past year. So I was shooting that site, y'all's mag pro, uh, which it was on an eight degree as well. So I, 
confession here, I bent it up so that it worked with the eight eight degree because I think when I bought it from you guys, it didn't have you didn't have the eight degree available yet. So yeah. you must have bought yeah. early on, didn't you? I think I was one of the first orders y'all had, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, awesome. I mean, honestly, you, your product was something I was wanting to come up with myself, but I wasn't ready to actually do it. Like I, I just had the idea and I started to buy stuff off Amazon to build one myself. And then legitimately when I'm thinking I should just develop this and like make it a product, I've stumbled on y'all's. I'm like, well, good job, fellas. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't tell you, man. And this is, I'm not knocking you at all, but like a high percentage of people that we have relationships with because of this product and the company and everything is like that response. Like, wow, we, we, we were either a, you know, thinking about how we could do it or had something similar or, you know, rigged a GoPro or whatever, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, we just hit a heartstring. And I mean, you did. So I, I'm, I'm glad that you are a user and a fan. And, and I, I can't even tell you how, how happy, like I'm sitting here smiling ear to ear when you said I shot all five of my deer on the mag pro this year with the bow. That makes me, yeah. just, that's, that's amazing, dude. And I mean, <laughs> It doesn't seem like every year, you, you know, things don't kind of come together. And like you said, it, there's some luck involved with, with every hunt, you know. But it sounds like you're hunting like a crossing where you get the picture of this deer on, you know, a relatively small piece, you know. And that's just wild that it comes together for you like that. I'm I'm, I'm really excited. For yeah, that. man. I mean, I haven't killed a mature deer like that in years. I, I kill a, either a, around a three-and-a-half-year-old buck about every year. I mean – for South Carolina, 100 to 115 inches is most of the time a mature deer. That buck probably, my tax service said probably 120 to 125 at most, which I'm fine. I mean, I'm not here to make books. I'm here to enjoy bow hunting and, and eat the stuff. Like we had the tenderloin this past weekend from that buck. It's freaking delicious. That's yeah. what, that's why I do it, you know? Yeah. But, <clears throat> but yeah, man, I was super lucky and I don't get a chance at bucks that big very often around here because I do hunt a ton of pressured properties. So I was pumped. But yeah, I, Nate, I've got to send you. I I think there was, I think four of the hunts are on my Instagram using the Mag Pro. Like every kill shot has the Mag Pro. Obviously, the only hunt I haven't posted yet because I I didn't actually get good footage until the shot. I spined a doe. It was my last bow kill, like the the last week of the season. It was one of those instances where I drew back and she was at 17 and then she had another doe come up to nurse, which, you know, sad, sorry. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that makes people sad, but it was a yearling. She, she's going to be fine. Anyways, she bounded off 10 yards and I thought it was only like four or five. So I shot her from my, um, or I thought it was like 10, 15 yards. Really, she had only run a few yards. Anyways, I shot her, hit her in the spine. She drops, put another arrow in her. I think she's dying, and then she runs, which was so wild, man. She ran another 80 yards after those two arrows were in her and then finally died. Mm-hmm. But it was one of those videos that was like the only video I had from that entire hunt was me spining her, shooting her a second time, and then ultimately going and recovering her 80 yards later. So, um, But every, every deer I killed this year with the bow was using the mag probe on the front. And I will say, even that last deer, like – I I would not have known those two arrows. The second one I delivered was definitely a kill shot arrow, if not for having the Mag Pro and being able to review my shot. Same with another doe that is on the Instagram. She 
quarter to me. Um, as I was about to shoot her, she took a step closer to me. I hit one lung liver. She ran 100, 120 yards, bedded down. I jumped her up. She ran another 30 and died. I would not have known to give her more time, and I probably would have never found her if I didn't review that shot and see, oh, crap, she stepped toward me you know, last second, and I probably only got one lung. I need to give her an extra hour or so to die. And I did that, still ended up jumping her up, but she was dying when she jumped up because she only ran another 30 yards and died. So that's a lot, but that just tells you, like, I don't just do it for the, let's put a video on Instagram. It's also, man, I am seeing where I'm hitting these animals immediately after the shot on my cell phone, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Dude, you get it. I mean, you just get it. That's 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 why we developed the product was for us personally, for Devin and I, um, that that was quite literally the reason was like we just wanted to get a little bit, even if there's a little bit of vibration, because every bow is different. Some people have, you know, get better quality video than the others based on the phone and the bow and everything that you got on your setup. But, you know, if you can just get a little bit to where that deer ran to after and if you have the wherewithal to just follow that deer for just a little bit. I mean, it's, it's like super valuable information. Like it just is. I mean, I can't tell you how many times like we are reliant on, you know, reviewing that footage to at least get you started on, did he go over this log? Did he go over, you know, whatever you've heard the pitch, I'm sure. But that's, it's like so near and dear to me. And to hear you say all that just just makes me, just makes me real happy and excited. So hundred percent, man. Well, kudos to you guys. Keep it up. Offline, I'm going to give you a couple ideas, uh, but I won't do it publicly on your podcast because you never know. One might actually be a good idea that you <laughs> make a new product with. But No, we're all for um, that. But hey, yeah, tell tell everybody where they can find your stuff. This, this video that we specifically talked about is on our Instagram page, but let everybody know where they can go and check out your stuff if they want to you know, reach out to you to either chat about bows or get something worked on or tuned, like tell everybody where they can do that. Yeah. I mean, the, the best way is Instagram. That's where I'm most prevalent. And the tag is at bow hunt better, uh, or you can search precision archery outfitting. Um, that's probably the best way I will have a website soon. I ended up buying the domain bowhuntbetter.com, Um, but I'm still working on that and exactly what do I offer? I mean, I love to make hats and shirts, but, I don't know what else I offer online yet. So really Instagram is the best way. Just reach out to me, DM. We, I, I can give my email through that DM as well. If anybody wants more info and I'd be happy to chat. Highly recommend it guys. I mean, I'm very impressed. You just had a, a series where you were basically, it was a bow hunt better series. You were talking about the vitals of the deer. You're talking about best practices of tuning and just, I, I think you have a lot of good stuff and I'm, I'm definitely going to watch out for you. In the Thanks future. man. So, well, I appreciate it a lot. It was good chatting. Alrighty, man. Thanks, everybody, for listening along, and we will catch you on the next one. Perfect.